about two months into my priesthood, I made a big mistake. I came home with a six-week-old puppy. And I was a new priest in a big parish. And I'm still trying to figure out what priesthood is all about, how to really thrive as a priest. There's just a lot of uh, things coming in a lot of different directions. And I'd always been a pet person. I'd always loved dogs. And I'd always, um, and growing up, I was pretty good with dogs. I mean, I had one that I trained easily and well when I was in middle school. And so I prided myself on being, um, you know, good at that. And I thought, oh, man, it would be so awesome once I'm a priest to finally uh, be able to have a dog again. And in my great excitement, as soon as I got ordained, it was one of the first decisions I made. And I chose to get a puppy who was not potty trained and who needed a lot of attention. In my first couple months of priesthood, I had no time for this little monster. This puppy was very difficult to potty train. This puppy was very needy and needed a lot of attention that I was not able to give it. I had very busy days as a new priest, and I was often not even at the house at all. And this monster destroyed furniture. He messed all over the house. He was constantly wiggly and never calmed down. I could never just relax and pet the thing. And I got to the point pretty quickly that I didn't even like the darn thing. And now I have this monster in, as my responsibility. And I lasted six months. Finally, I had to just get rid of it. I just, like, I had to give it away. So I gave it to the secretary at, in Broussard and Oh, man, she was retired, semi-retired, she was a secretary, but, um, but so overjoyed. And now this puppy has a great life with um, an old lady who spoils him. And uh, they're both happier for it, and I don't miss the thing one bit. And, but it's amazing how sometimes we ask for things without really knowing what we're asking for. This happens a lot. It might have happened to your family, especially if you have kids. They see a cute little kitten or puppy at the store on the side of the road, and they ask mom or dad if we can keep them. Please, please, please. There's tears, dramatic tears. And then the parent gives in, and they say, only if you feed them. And the kid says, I promise I'll feed them, and they never do. And then it's a big regret. Or uh, maybe it's not a pet. Maybe, maybe we want a bigger house with a bigger yard, and then we finally get it, and we're in debt, and we have to mow all this grass, and it takes so much time and so much work, it's not even worth it. Or maybe we want a promotion. We're jealous of the status and the responsibilities that some of our coworkers get. They got promoted, and we should have been promoted. And finally, one day, we get a promotion, and suddenly the responsibilities are too stressful and we're sad, we're depressed, and we wish we didn't even get the promotion in the first place. It happens all the time. We desire things all the time. And it's not necessarily bad that we desire things. I mean, the Lord has given us, um, uh, you know, these passions that we are to use for his glory. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing that we have all these desires. But sometimes we don't quite know what we're getting into. Sometimes we ask for things and we don't really know what we're asking for. 
Sometimes what we ask is a little more trouble than it's worth. And we see that in today's gospel. James and John approach Jesus with a very bold request. And, and this is wonderful because the Lord blesses that. The Lord loves a bold asker. I mean, he would much prefer that than an apathetic, um, lukewarm person. But, so he, so he, he's excited that there's these great desires within his apostles. So he doesn't reprimand them. But turns out they didn't know what they were asking. James and John say, Lord, give us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, okay, well, what do you have in mind? And he says, I mean, they say, may it be so that we would sit at your left and your right in your glory, that we would be at your right hand and your left hand. In other words, that we would have that authority that you have. This, this is symbolic language. To sit at your right hand is, is what um, would take place with, with kings, that if you sit at the right hand, then you could act on their behalf. You could judge. You can promulgate. You can uh, do things on behalf of the king. You have that power. You have that authority, and you have that glory. And that's what James and John wanted. They're, they're following Jesus. They're one of his closest companions. And, and they understand that Jesus is this important Messiah King. And so they want to be the ones that are at his right hand. They want to have that same authority. They want to be close with him so that they can help him govern the kingdom. But Jesus says, mm, I don't think you quite know what you're asking. He asks them a, a further question, as Jesus loves to do. Can you drink the chalice that I will drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So this is some uh, symbolic theological language as well. So just to unpack that for you in case you missed it. Um, the cup is often a symbol in the Old Testament for um, what God has in store for you. So we see in the Old Testament a lot, we'll see like the cup of blessing or the cup of suffering. Um, and, and so this happens in the Psalms and the prophets. And, and so Jesus says, can you drink the chalice, the cup that I will drink? And the chalice that Jesus drinks, we know, is the chalice of his blood. The blood that he presents to his apostles on the Last Supper and manifests most perfectly on the cross. Can you drink the chalice that I will drink? In other words, are you ready to suffer to the point of death for the salvation of the world? We're not sure James and John quite understood that because they so readily say, yes, we can. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, again, this is symbolic language for suffering and death. What we know is that baptism is a symbol for uh, dying to your old self and rising to new life in Jesus Christ. Dying to sin, rising to grace. St. Paul makes this very clear. He says, do you not know that when you're baptized, you're baptized into Christ's death so that you may rise with him and enter into glory? So both this chalice and this baptism that Jesus talks about is referencing his passion, Jesus dying on the cross. In other words, are you ready to follow me to Calvary? They said yes. Turns out John actually did follow him, but James didn't. But nonetheless, James later uh, dies a martyr, so he gets his chance of redemption. But Jesus says to them, it's true, you will suffer and you will die. And you will be my disciple in that way. But nonetheless, 
he who sits in my left and my, in my right is not for me to give, but for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, it's not you. Sorry. It's not you, James and John. But notice, Jesus was gentle with them. Jesus was um, encouraging with them and even challenged them with this request. He didn't reprimand them for making a request. We should never be afraid to ask Jesus for anything, no matter how small or big these desires. But sometimes when we ask for things, we don't quite know what we're asking for. And sometimes the Lord, in his great wisdom, sees that. And chooses not to grant our request in the mode of which we've asked. Because he knows truly what we really want. So who's at Jesus' right hand? This symbolic language, to be at the right hand again. It's, it's to have that authority to act on his behalf. Jesus uh, gives us a little clue by saying, he says that, he did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's showing that authority is not in power, but rather in mercy. Authority is not in control, but rather in love. Authority is not what you think it is. It's not in the greed and the pride and the status that we all strive for all the time. Authority, real authority, in the name of Jesus Christ is in mercy, it's in service, it's in giving your life for others as a ransom for many. It's what Jesus did on Calvary, that's authority. And to sit on the throne that Jesus is prepared to sit on is a throne of grace that the letter to the Hebrews references in today's second reading. The throne of grace with which we run towards with confidence because we're not running towards this throne as a, master, as a slave runs to a master, but rather as a son or a daughter runs to a father, and we receive mercy. In the Old Testament, there's a tradition of kings and queens, not just kings. There's the royal kingdom of David, the greatest king of, a, of the Old Testament, just the fulfillment of, of, of the, the people of God. Um, and then there are other kings after him. And God was setting up a structure so that the Messiah could come in as a king. But even in the Old Testament, the kings had a queen. But it, they weren't queens. Uh, they weren't wives. The queens were not the wife of the king. They never were. Not in the people of God. The queens instead were the mothers. We see this um, with Bathsheba. Whenever David was king, Bathsheba is David's wife, she was really humble and she revered uh, David the king and, and understood that she had no authority, that she was just there to serve the king. But whenever David dies and her son Solomon comes into reign, we suddenly see Queen Bathsheba acting as queen with power and authority on behalf of her son. And this is fulfilled in a number of other examples uh, throughout Scripture. There's this great tradition, Jewish tradition, of the queen mother who sits at the right hand of the king with power and authority 
sharing that authority of the king. And it's fitting that as we now enter to the New Testament, Jesus is spoken about in royal language. He is a king, a Messiah king. Uh, whenever the, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, um, he, she says, uh, I mean, he says that the power of the Most High will overshadow you and, um, and you will give birth to a child who will be great among the nations. He will rule over the nations. He will be uh, the, um, from the line of David, from the royal kingship. We see um, in the visitation that whenever Mary visits Elizabeth, her, uh, her cousin, that, that Elizabeth greets her, hail, full of grace, uh, how is it that the mother of my Lord would come to me? This term, mother of my Lord, is, is a phrase that was used in that time period to refer to the queen mother. The Lord was another word for king. Um, how is it that the mother of my Lord, the queen mother, would come to me? Another reference of royal language. We see other references, but another obvious one is um, in the book of Revelation. We see this, this woman clothed with the sun appearing in the sky with a crown of 12 stars. There is a crown. She presents herself as a queen who is pregnant with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And she conquers Satan. And becomes the mother of all those in Christ. And so again, we see a very clear image of Mary, this queen mother who sits at the right hand of Jesus. In other words, she has the authority of Christ. But again, her authority is not in power and control. Her authority is in mercy. And so we hear in that great prayer, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. When we pray, when you pray, what are you seeking? What do you seek when you pray? When you pray, are you asking for more power? Are you asking for more control? Are you asking for more prestige? Are you asking for more pleasure? Are you asking for more comfort, for more convenience? Are you asking for more things? Imagine if we started to pray for more mercy. If we started to pray for more experiences of God's love, and whenever we pray that we would rather seek first to draw close to the Father's heart and encounter what real mercy actually feels like. Imagine if we started praying like that. Mary's a great model for us, and it's not a bad thing to ask the Lord for all these other desires that we have. But imagine how much more effective and more fruitful it would be if we asked the Lord for mercy. If we asked the Lord to experience his love face to face. Because it's only mercy that's powerful enough 
to scatter the darkness of hate. It's only mercy that's powerful enough to transform this world from all that's wrong with it. It's only mercy that's powerful enough to shine the grace of Jesus Christ in a world that's so discouraged and dark. We cannot give mercy unless we first receive it. We cannot share love unless we first know what love is. We cannot first be a witness of Jesus Christ until we receive his grace in a personal encounter with him. We may think that we want more power, money, and control, but we don't. What we really want is mercy, true mercy, not cheap mercy. We want true mercy from God the Father with Jesus at his right hand and Mary at his right. God is your father and Mary is your mother and they speak the language of mercy, a mercy that changes a mercy that transforms and a mercy that impels us to give our lives voluntarily, to be a ransom for many. So today I just want us to approach this altar with confidence, as the letter to the Hebrew says today, knowing full well that Mary, our mother, and, and Jesus, our Savior, and God, our Father, is ready to encounter us and to show us what mercy really means so that we can also hold an authority in this body of Christ, but not an authority of greed, power, and control, that we would have the authority of mercy so that we too would lay down our lives for others. Amen.